Come on, let's try that. Uh, okay, so now it looks like it's recording. You know, we never really got into a whole lot of the more advanced logical concepts in GM2, but one that's important is called nonlinearity. That, that idea is that things assume different significance given the framework upon which that they're analyzed in. And to look at a mask being put on a person's face as simply being to protect them from infection looks at it from one perspective, which is how effective is that mask as a, as a filtration device. The nonlinear part is that everything assumes a different perspective altogether if you're actually surrounded by a bunch of people who wear masks, then everything changes. The nonlinear part is that actually at that point, uh, the, the roughly 25% chance that the mask will give you protection is converted to an almost 95% chance that the mask will give you protection simply by being surrounded by all sorts of other people wearing masks because here you're getting a doubling effect, right? You're getting the effect of the filtration that's coming by virtue of you and you're getting the effect of the fact that people are fil filtering their expirational gases as well. <clears throat> Anybody who was logical would be able to look to see that the government advice on this was just terrible. It was, it was unscientific, um, and it was really so transparently about their worries that people were going to run out and buy N95 masks and, and take them away from healthcare workers. But they simply neglected to say, you know, and I said this in one of the... Uh, conference calls I did with scientific affairs. They, the, if you look at the way the 1918 pandemic actually managed to actually end, it was <clears throat> through the widespread adoption of masks. And the standard guideline for the mask that was adopted was six layers of cheesecloth. Anybody looked at cheesecloth recently? I mean, it's a very, very porous substance. So the idea here <clears throat> was that you know, we had a, a government advice there. We had calculations now saying that um, if the shelter in place advice had been given a week earlier, uh, it is estimated that it will have, would have saved between 15 and 20,000 lives. So the mere fact that it took them that extra week to simply come to the conclusion that social distancing and, 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 and self-quarantine and social isolation, the difference is measured in, in, in tens of thousands of, of graveyards. So what was the big thing that actually changed at least the, the course of the illness from the dire prognostications that they had with regard to the awareness one day that all of a sudden this thing was already in the country and nobody had a, we had, as you're well aware of, we had a faulty CDC test. Uh, the reagent didn't work. We had tests that we could have gotten, for instance, easily from Italy, Germany, South Korea, and China that the CDC rejected because they hadn't been FDA approved. Okay, so here's, <clears throat> here's the, the comedy of errors. So no testing for the longest period of time. We, ha we have the world's greatest healthcare system, quote unquote, and biomedical powerhouse is, is driving without its headlights on at this point in terms of being able to make any sense of the scope, the depth and the seriousness of this pandemic. You have the World Health Organization, 
who doesn't want to basically irritate the Chinese. So they don't even call a pandemic. They simply say, we don't use that term anymore. So now you're looking at <clears throat> this situation. But the interesting thing that I thought was most profound, I'm going to just close the door. is that the American public, and to a certain degree, the public of the other countries, outperformed their healthcare services. Because you probably were aware that, you know, a week or so before people got the official memo to start isolating and sheltering in place, people were already adopting that behavior. Certainly I knew around where I was in Connecticut, most people were already becoming a little bit more careful about where they were finding themselves. So um, here's the, that's the paradoxical thing, is that the weird part about this pandemic is that the actual public has actually been on average a week or two ahead of the governmental agencies, which tells you a certain degree about what the future could be like and the limitations of the current medical model. But as I look at it, you know, you've, you've had way too much philosophy, I'm sure. But, you know, one, one of the things, and you're all very young, and some of you probably weren't even born back in 1984, 1985. And by the way, if you all have a question or you want to just ask me something or say what you want this, this conversation to go, please do. Um, can you all talk okay? I mean, I didn't mute anybody, did I? You're all good, right? Yeah, we're, we could talk. Good. Um, so, you know, you, you have a new disease for which there is no treatment. And you have an unknown degree of penetration into society. And the medical model says that we have, and I'm talking about HIV now. Okay, I'm talking about AIDS. This is 1980-something. Medical model is, you know, we need to have these uh, antivirals. They need to be tested, you know, placebo-controlled. And this is all good. It's all very, very logical stuff. Except the time frame is going to result in, in most of the people who are currently inflicted not being alive long enough to benefit from the results of the study. So how do you... How do you address the needs of these people who in the short term are going to require more of an ad hoc approach when the whole medical infrastructure is based upon going down this research model that's going to take anywhere from, uh, I don't know, a year or two. And then basically we've talked about this also in the past, but it's another side story. So this led to something called ACT UP, which was a, a largely gay-driven agenda to uh, fast track. And guess who was the major guy who was uh, stonewalling a lot of that back then? Anthony Fauci. So you have a situation here where 30 years later, 40 years later, the system still responds in this kind of creaky, antiquated manner, despite the fact that we're now being prevented again, uh, presented again with a new disease, with an unknown clinical course in the long term, with no effective treatments and no effective testing in the early stages. We hadn't learned a thing. 
So then you look and you say to yourself, okay, well, and I know for me, when I, we got to about, uh, I'd say around, I think it might have been January 10th or so, and that's when I started thinking people in astronaut suits walking down streets in China just didn't look really, it didn't look really like reassuring to me. Um, and then you thought to yourself, okay, but everybody here seems to act like this is no big deal. And yet they're, they're actually having conniptions over there. I mean, you, you know, you could see videos of them, you know, spraying the streets down and having, you know, all this kind of people dying and, Everybody seemed so blasé about it, you know, as if somehow or another it was never going to get here. And they probably know this now, but even the models that were like, well, you know, coming from China, it turns out all this stuff in the tri-state area came from Europe. That particular viral strain that basically is killing all the New Yorkers came from Europe. So it can tell you that, you know, a virus can be halfway around the world before the public health system gets their pants on. You know, so this is a situation we find ourselves now. And yet, you look at the whole Chinese experience, and I'm sure you've gone to clinicaltrials.gov, and you see, here's a trial of Redemsevir and vitamin C. Here's a trial of chloroquine in combination with traditional Chinese medicine. That's None of that's going on here, because at least with the Chinese, they had a kind of an open-minded attitude about, you know, the crisis that was actually taking place. And they wanted to be able to throw things at it to see whether or not some of these things had some value. I mean, there's no trials going on in this country that are looking at TCM or anything like that, or, you know, not even, I mean, there's, a, you, there's some places that got into uh, large amounts of, um, arguments and stuff over things like adding zinc to the protocol or vitamin C. So, you know, we have a situation here where, you know, we've got a politicized drug on one hand. We have the antiviral that is from uh, Gilead. What is it? Redemsevir or something like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, they both didn't do well in the studies that, looked at using them in cases of extremis, okay? So in other words, where the person was um, receiving oxygen but was starting to uh, decompensate and was going into uh, uh, what would be the very beginnings of the respiratory distress syndrome. And so these drugs were not proving to be, and they still haven't shown a whole lot of efficacy there. Matter of fact, there was some reports I was reading today that showed that um, in, in extremity, even the um, uh, donor plasma doesn't work that good. So, and and it, it probably makes sense, at least to me, because at that point in time, I'm not even sure you're really fundamentally dealing with a viral issue anyway. I mean, you're dealing with the consequences of the virus, but at that point in time, antivirals are not, they're, they're, the removal of the virus may not necessarily be, you know, sufficient. And we looked at some of those things that starts. So, you know, we have gone into a role here now with, with, um, well, with social media and with telemedicine and the ability to do, to reach large audiences with information 
my website and then some of the blogs I've been writing, it's, it's, it's clear that, you know, we occupy a, a, a wonderfully helpful, just like in AIDS, a wonderfully helpful niche, but we're not, there's no airtime that's being devoted to it because, you know, if you say to somebody, hey, um, you know, vitamin D or something like that, of course, you get all this kickback from the other medical people and stuff. But the interesting thing is, again, I go back to the, the premise I, was, I started at the beginning, which is the public seems to be ahead of the health experts on these kind of things. So for instance, if you look at what would be a typical ad, 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 uh, adoption process. In other words, if we ran a poll on um, the Facebook group that I moderate and, and we got about, I don't know, 1500 responses and it's clear, number one, vitamin C, number two, vitamin D, uh, number three, zinc, number four, elderberry. So if you look at those large numbers of people, at least it's self-selected to, in essence, these are the people that were hanging out on my Facebook group. Other things that they were using sort of scaled down from there, but uh, you had, you know, up in the top there, you had quercetin, um, nettle, um, melatonin. We'll talk a little bit about some of those. I think it's, it's important. But you have really the two, what I would call, early stages, you know, the, the first stage is really a zero stage. It's kind of a asymptomatic, uh, probably unexposed, okay? So there the, the strategy is mostly preemptive, mostly preventive, uh, the, or what you want to do is canalize, which is one of my favorite words. It's trying, it means it's trying to get something to go in a direction you'd like it to go into it has to go in some direction, so maybe you can try to do something to make it go more into your direction than something else. So, you know, it's nice if you don't get it, but if you do get it, you know, how are we going to control the course of it in those intermediate stages and how are we going to uh, protect against the, the progression to the next step, which is uh, what I would consider to be, well, you have zero, which is... Um, asymptomatic, uh, uninfected, and I say one is, is uh, an initial influenza, which is moderately uncomfortable, perhaps some myalgia, some fever, and then there'd be moderate influenza, uh, which would be uh, fever, dry cough, uh, and, and, and the precipice at that point is, is um, you know, dyspnea. Uh, which would then, you know, because what's the criteria that's going to put a person in a nice, you know, in a hospital situation, uh, you know, so going into a hospital is one thing, going into an ICU is another, and going into ARDS is, is another, and each one of those scales down appropriately, but um, generally the advice that they give is, is that if a person is having serious difficulty breathing, uh, then they advise you to basically contact the hospital. And at that point, they're usually given a level of oxygen with some nasal cannula type stuff and could be as little as three or 5%. Mostly to assist, you know, being able to keep the saturation levels up, which actually kind of takes me to an interesting aside here, which you might be reading about um, in your own studies, which is the, the notion that... Um, 
the coronavirus uh, displaces uh, heme from the porphyrin setup. This thing got a lot of mileage. And I mean, in functional medicine, they're like, you know, this explains everything. It's almost like this is the major illumination of things. But it doesn't hold water. Okay. Uh, so let me explain. And, and also, I want to I say that uh, one of the things I really sort of got back in touch with with this was trying to appreciate just how ignorant I am and how likely I am to want to think something maybe a little too quickly and how maybe resistant I am to changing my mind once it's made up. So I think this has had a profound effect on me as a thinker because now I just, I just assume I'm wrong. Go with that. You know, I assume that probably didn't get it right. I assume that perhaps there's going to have to be some change in my approximation of things. So I, I didn't go into the whole heme thing thinking that I, I was going to reject it. It, it, it. I would have preferred that I could find strong support for it. That would have made me feel better. But there's a couple of things we have to be aware of with this theory that makes it very difficult to get terribly excited about it. So it goes like this. Uh, you know, there's a, I don't know, about 21 proteins that basically get coded for in the genome of, of uh, SARS-CoV-2, which is, uh, I think it's about 31 genes, 32 genes. Uh, which seems to be a lot because Ebola has exactly nine genes. So that manages to kill you in an absolutely elegant fashion uh, because if you can think about the fact that you can get a whole lot of stuff like that done with nine genes, that's pretty, pretty darn impressive. But coronaviruses are, are they're more complicated. Uh, they're, they're mechanisms of... of uh, of infiltration are much more sophisticated. Uh, and so they have, and I can give you the link to this. There was a good article in the New York Times that actually went through each one of the proteins. I don't know if you saw it. It was um, uh, kind of cool. It had like a little picture of the protein and then it kind of gave it a nickname. And so you had, a lot of these proteins are very well understood. You know, there are fusion proteins, there are proteins that get involved in S spike production. There's proteins that uh, have to do with uh, initiating the first ribosomal activation of the viral RNA, the initial cytoplasmic replication, which is the thing that makes the first series of, of proteins that then go ahead and, and, and start to active, activate the secondary uh, polymerases. So th they know a lot about it. But still, some of these uh, proteins are they, they're kind of mysterious. You know, they even say this is a mystery protein. Paradoxically enough, the, the proteins that were considered in this New York Times article as being mystery proteins were the very ones that this researchers, these two researchers in China, were saying they had demonstrated had a predilection for bonding and inactivating the heme protein and causing it to disassociate with the porphyrin. So interesting theory. So it turned out to be uh, ORF3, ORF8, ORF10A. These are the 
basic proteins. ORF stands for operational reading frame. It's when you know there is a gene there uh, and you don't quite know what it is, so you just give it a generic name like that. So, so there's bacteria genomes have a huge amount of ORFs because we just don't have a lot of knowledge about what these things do. As soon as we figure out what it is, it makes a convertase or something like that, then it gets a regular name. But a lot of these ORFs are just mystery proteins. So these two researchers in China basically used a protein uh, program. This was done in silico. So uh, they took uh, these ORF proteins and they ran it through uh, simulations and discovered that the ORF proteins, I think it was three and eight, were able to bind to the heme molecule in a certain way that caused it to be structurally inactivated. And this sounded really good, except that you, if you read the article, it became quite clear that because this was all being done in, in silico, you could, with almost like a stick shift, throttle up the energy of attraction to be able to make that occur. So the researchers managed to get these ORF proteins to fit heme by in, in literally imploding the attractive energy to the point where if you were gonna draw a conclusion down at that level, they were you could power a nuclear submarine with the amount of energy that they were putting into the study to cause these two molecules to be attracted to each other. So already you sort of, I struggle with the fact that, hey, if you have to just add so much kinetic energy to make these two molecules bind, you're never going to find that in a biological system. So already the, the theory is somewhat weak. The second issue has to do with the fact that if the viral proteins are being made and they're inactivating heme, then the amount of viral proteins that are being made is going to be reflective of the total amount of viral particles in the body. And that's a kind of a a known factor. It turns out that when you're infected with a virus, you just don't have a lot of virus. If you make a little pile next to the person, there's not, it's not a big pile, okay? So how are you gonna explain the fact that the, a total amount of viral particles in the body would have to be two or three or four times the known amount in order for those viral proteins to be able to cause those complications to the heme molecule sufficient to be able to cause the uh, inability of the uh, oxygen saturation to sustain uh, uh, gas, gas transfer. Uh, and then finally, um, look at the red blood cell itself. We have a, a, a non-nucleated cell with zero genetic material. And the viral protein is going to be jettisoned, I guess, as a consequence of the release of the virus. And this virus protein is somehow, either through the virus itself or independently on its own, going to cause a reaction with the surface of the red blood cell such that it causes, it penetrates the red blood cell and interacts with the heme molecule. Now this would be a wonderful thing because if this was true, it means that you could treat this with transfusions, you could treat this with EPO, right, uh, erythropoietin, any of the uh, growth factor type things. You could, treat, you could treat it with a dye called methylene blue, because you could treat methyl hemoglobinuria with, with this, uh, blo this blocks that same mechanism. You could probably, if this was true, you could probably treat it by eating an impossible burger, because 
Impossible burgers are made out of vegetable heat. And so that would act potentially as some kind of a donor to uh, this. But the difficulty with it is that it just doesn't sustain itself on, a, on, on enough of a physical level. So we're still left with one dilemma, which is, <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> these people have low, low levels, uh, their, their, their oxygen saturations are low. Why is that the case? <clears throat> well, it's still there. We still don't really know. Uh, but it's surprising when you think about the fact that um, when your oxygen saturation goes, you know, percentage-wise down into the low 90s, um, your organs start dying. So the, the, there isn't a lot of wiggle room. You know, and you'll see, you see this with um, the consequences of um, emphysema, uh, pulmonary fibrosis, lung cancer, <clears throat> is that sometimes the end-stage consequences actually are uh, related uh, not only to the primary disease, but the fact that the oxygen concentration is, 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 is dropping down and the tissues now are starting to go into a, a hypoxia death cycle. And that then basically results in um, uh, septicemia and septic shock. And then that produces the other consequences that typically you see in the last stages. So it's a good idea to think about why this is occurring. I mean, I don't think there's any necessity to put it on the other theory that I just discussed with you uh, because um, we do know that people who are in the real severe stages of COVID and have pneumonia, uh, their expectoration is characteristically uh, sort of bright, hot pink. So there's a lot of hemolysis that's going on at the alveolar interface. And uh, that's probably more likely to play an important role in, in the consequences. Uh, and then, you know, we could ask ourselves a million dollar question is really, uh, have we been rushing with the uh, ventilators perhaps maybe a little too precipitously? Um, and uh, some studies are showing that um, you do better if you hold off till the absolute last minute before you actually innovate somebody because you can even you know use a high pressure oxygen up to 10 percent um and you know under pressure and uh it, it seems to work uh reasonably well and tends to mitigate having to go to the next step and you know i've never witnessed a person who was basically put on a ventilator but people don't like it uh, so, you know, typically you can range from getting a mild axiolytic to allay your anxiety to having to be put into a drug-induced coma because you just refuse to have this thing hanging in your lungs. So it's a, it's a, it's not for nothing that, you know, what is the chances that once a person with COVID-19 goes, does anybody know the percentage of people who come off ventilators? Not very high. It must be extremely low. Yeah, I don't think 10, people do. 20%. 20%.
20, if you go on a ventilator with COVID-19, you've got a four out of five chance that you're going to be taken off of dead. Okay, so you have, uh, you, you, you would think, okay, so, you know, how do you look at this equation? I mean, obviously, if they just can't breathe anymore, that's what you can do. But, um, you know, going back to what I was saying before, if, if, if we had opportunities to, 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 to address uh, the aspects of the infection that could be modifiable. Now, this gets you into another area of, of tremendous unknowns. And that's, you know, <clears throat> viral load and frequency of exposure. And these two things, now who's, I see, is that Jesse's got like four cats over there? <laughs> so now we get to see who's the cat people and who are the dog people. Seems to be an overabundance of cat people. If you see my dog? I've got, I've got two cats and two dogs. Okay. Well, put a dog up there. I, I'm, I'm a dog guy. Come here, Hart. Come here. Come here. Oh, he's uh, a cutie. Yeah, he's a sweetheart. If I could just add something about the ventilators, I mean, if it adds to the conversation, but our emergency medicine teacher on Fridays, uh, Dr. Coley, he works at the Bronx um, Hospital. And he, you know, he said that they wait until ox, the pulse ox, you know, ox saturation is about 30 before ventilating them. And every person he's seen, once they put on the ventilator, they just decompensate rapidly. And that's, that's kind of it. But imagine an oxygen saturation of like 30. And that means people who have 60 or 70, they're just holding them and watching them, and right? So. And they, they, will, they will have those 60 or 70s, they're gonna have some long-term consequences as well because there, there will be um, systemic and, and constitutional consequences from that. Uh, and it might be um, exaggerated uh, fibrinolytic activity. Um, you know, they're knowing that these lungs are just, they're messed up big time for the, most of the people who get to that stage. So, and I mean, this, this is, and the people I've talked to have, have really been quite clear that this is just something that nobody had really ever, uh, come in contact with before. Had any Has everyone seen the x-rays of the lungs and the change that will happen over 72 hours, basically? Because I can like maybe post it to the group if people haven't seen it. But if you have seen it, I mean, I don't read the news, so if, if people have already seen this, then I won't bother. But yeah, well, you know, they're, 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 amazing. they're like they're, opaque, 72 they're, hours. They're massively <laughs> opaque. Um, and really, this is this pathogenesis of this particular strand of coronavirus is what's it's 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 so different this is this is very aberrant even as as far as re respiratory viruses go if you look at for instance uh, mers and sars they 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 had an immediate uh, infection in the upper respiratory tract and that basically was not only well it, it was an early stage indicator. So people who were infected within a very short period of time, they looked sick. They acted sick. They were sick. This particular SARS-2 actually spends a whole lot of time in the nasopharynx. 
and then in the throat, and then seems to bypass the upper pulmonary areas and goes exclusively to the lower. Whereas uh, the other respiratory viruses are almost all upper respiratory viruses. And because so much of this is occurring at the pulmonary sort of basement, you know, it's, you're, you're dealing with, with a whole lot more complications in terms of you know, inflammasome activity and um, complement fixation and fibrotic changes and all sorts of things having to do with uh, changes to uh, viscosity, thromboembolisms, and then you get all the secondary, then you've got cardiac consequences too. Um, so, you know, this is going to leave those, that middle, what you would call moderate to severe influenza stage, these people are going to have uh, physical consequences that might be lifelong in terms of uh, predilections for more opportunistic infections, perhaps, or low-grade or um, uh, chronic bronchitis, uh, bronchiectasis, those kind of things are probably going to be more likely. There's probably going to be a fair share of PTSD as well. May I ask something? Sure. I've been kind of looking at the typical lab profile for someone admitted for COVID. And one of the things that I can't wrap my head around is why particularly we would see elevated D-dimer. Like it doesn't seem that I might be unfamiliar with like typical ARDS, I guess, serology, but D-dimer seems abnormal. Well, I mean, it is part of the whole coagulation issue that has to yeah. be. Um, and so, um, now here's an interesting uh, thing uh, that uh, I do remember coming across. I think I lost my screen here. There we are. Um, quercetin has some efficacy here. Specifically and, with anticoagulation or? Yeah. So let me, let me see if I can figure this out. You just have to bear with me here. Uh, I think it actually, you know, it's interesting. I put stuff on the Facebook group and then it just gets lost. It's, a, it's not a good forum for being able to um, hold on to stuff really easily. But um, let me see if I can find it. You all been eating better because of this whole thing? I know I have. Taking time to cook. Mm -hmm. uh, I discovered something the other day was really weird. I'll tell you about it in a second. I want to find this other thing on course and then. It's amazing. This I don't know if you've gone by this Facebook group, but it's it's interesting because it's it's got a lot of good stuff, and then you just have so many people who just post stuff because they're just so scared and nervous, and you know, and it's like. People, people really just, it's amazing. I, the whole information thing is kind of a 
double-edged sword. You get so many people who just say stuff. I mean, there's just this whole thing going on about, where the heck is this damn thing? Um, let me see, Carl F. Where, there we go. Um, do, 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 do. Now I gotta figure out how to get this thing on the screen. All right. Targeting protein disulfide isomerase with flavonoid isocorsetin. Isocorsetin and quercetin works the same way. Isocorsetin has got a bit more bioavailability uh, than quercetin, but uh, I thought this was very interesting. And uh, it, it showed that uh, uh, this was um, effective at being able to uh, have some beneficial effects on this protein disulfide isomerase, which is part of some of the hypocoagulability stuff. Now, I don't know necessarily M what, what the mechanistic basis of uh, the whole uh, association with that is. I, I, I never really tracked it down much. Uh, but the reality is that, uh, where did my screen go? Oh, you're looking at my screen. Uh, please assign another. Yeah, I don't want to leave the meeting. Okay. So um, what's the other thing you might have come across uh, about quercetin that makes it so fascinating in these times? You guys aware of that? Do you know what a zinc ionophore is? Doesn't quercetin stop um, some protein of coronavirus going into cells? That's all I remember from a lecture. Uh, who's that, Sarah? Yeah, that's me. Hi, sorry. What do we got? A picture of you getting a white coat? Sorry, hi. That was my Facebook. I'm like, hi. Wasn't that in um, a lecture, like a uh, Grand Rounds that quercetin stops Corona to go from going into the cell? Yeah, no. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry, that's all I remember. Okay, that might so have been nettle root. Uh, quercetin was, was mentioned in a, a, I don't remember what they said about quercetin, but I think what you're thinking of might have been the nettle root. Yeah, yeah it could be. Nettle root uh, has a lectin that interferes with uh, the capacity of the virus to utilize the ACE2 uh, receptor. Oops. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, a zinc ionophore is uh, a compound that opens up a gate that allows the influx of zinc into the cytoplasm of a cell. And zinc is a very highly ionic molecule. So in solution, it obviously has, uh, uh, it's supercharged with two extra electrons. And the uh, tendency because of that ionic charge is that it will have a very, it, almost impossible for it to diffuse across the cell membrane. So you're left with the fact that there is a reasonable amount of zinc 
in most people in their extracellular fluids and serum. But zinc is very critical, so the body has to devolve a way to basically allow the zinc to come in, but under a much more controlled manner. But it can't let zinc diffuse passively because zinc actually will ramp up a lot of processes that the body would prefer to have much more control over. Like for instance, there's a, all sorts of lysosomal activity and all sorts of things. So you just can't let the zinc penetrate. So what happens is the body has ionophoric gates. Uh, and and uh, chemicals that are known as ionophores open up those gates and it allows zinc to actually pass into the cell. And it turns out that actually uh, RNA viruses are, are very sensitive to the levels of, of zinc. And, and the initial stages of uh, coronavirus reproduction uh, does, because it's an RNA virus, it takes place directly in, this, in the cytosol. So the modulation of a small amount of extra zinc into the cytoplasm uh, has been shown to have very, very <clears throat> distinct effects on, on virtually stopping viral reproduction. Now, the most common zinc ionophores, believe it or not, fall into the same framework as the chloroquines and hydroxychloroquines and stuff. Um, however, the natural product that's been what best studied is, is quercetin, uh, which is a naturally and well-researched zinc ionophore. So the other side of the coin with, with uh, uh, aspects of, of uh, what we advocate people do as far as a sort of more of a proactive preventive approach does involve quercetin. Um, and, and so we wind up with a, a, a twofold benefit. Um, a similarity here in terms of uh, the uh, quinine analogs uh, in terms of its effects on causing a zinc influx. Now the other side of the coin is if you look at what's the other aspect that has to do with um, uh, the uh, quinine analogs is that they, they have effects on endosomal pH. That's the single classic sine qua non. Um, virus has to make endosomal fusion little blebules that have to be uh, where the final stages of protein synthesis occur. And most of these endosomal blebules are in the, uh, they're, well, they're endosomal, so they're using endoplasmic reticulum and Golgi apparatus. These are the secretory processes in the cell that are in, involved normally with, with the cell, cell production, cell secretions. And you know that when you synthesize a protein based upon an RNA template, that protein is going to assume its three-dimensional shape over time as the amino acids do their little song and dance. But typically, the protein still has to go into some endoplasmic reticulum compartment where it gets glycosylated. And, and that's where the protein assumes its fourth-dimensional characteristics. The glycosylated is, glycosylation is where the protein essentially gets its uh, future capacities for binding and, 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 and all the other uh, kinetic things that occur to it. Uh, also, too, a lot of its, uh, you know, well, the proteins have a capacity to locate based upon glycosylation characteristics. So that final glycosylation that takes place 
is done, and then and this is done in the endoplasmic reticulum, and then it's formed into a endosome, which is a kind of a, a blob, and then that thing migrates to the outside of the cell, where it fuses and it releases uh, the virus out into the uh, world to, to to do this all over again. Well, it turns out that uh, uh, the major Im implied mechanistic basis to the uh, quinine analogs is this uh, endosomal alkalinization that occurs. And, and it's known all the quinine drugs do this. Matter of fact, it's part of their mechanistic basis of why they're effective uh, against plasmodium as well. So um, there you have two, two aspects that one of them with, that are shared by the quinine analogs the zinc ionophore cap capacity is uh, something that is uh, mimicked by quercetin. The other side of the coin is that Chinese skull cap has the capacity to um, change the uh, endosomal pH in a manner similar to uh, chloroquine. So if you wanted the naturopathic version, of chloroquine, it would be a combination of quercetin and Chinese skullcap because then quercetin would act as the zinc ionophore, Chinese skullcap would act as the endosomal alkalinizer. And that's kind of um, a roll your, naturopathic roll your own version of what you could do with these kind of things. Um, I don't know if the information on blood type was out the last time we talked. Um, there, there are two studies that show that there is a predilection for type A to uh, have a more uh, severe uh, process associated with uh, infection. Uh, matter of fact, some hospitals now are uh, putting a premium on type O's in terms of uh, intensive care type situations. Um, and uh, we've done some polls with people who, who have uh, gone more severe, and, and they do tend to have an unexpected amount of type A. But it, it's no surprise. I mean, virtually all infectious diseases show a predilection for one blood type or another. Um, that's probably the reason blood types persist, is that they give this evolutionary capacity for a certain stratified population to be susceptible, but that by design means that this other population will be resistant. As in other words, if you're a person who makes blood type A but makes an antibody against blood type B, that particular set of attributes might in this particular epidemic be a problem if the active agent is B-like, but in another pandemic, it might be a beneficial thing if the infectious agent is A-like. And so this is largely why if you go to things like variety of protozoal, viral, bacterial things, they, they always have predilections for one blood type or another. So this is not, not surprising. And it's been known that coronaviruses have a, a higher, most of the, your influenza strains show predilections for one blood type or another as well. So it turns out that they had this observation, but it's interesting because I think I'm the only person who ever bothered wondering why. Uh, and it, it turns out that actually there is a very good reason. It, it's the capacity to make an opposing blood group antibody to blood group A that conveys the benefit and the protection. It turns out that the A anti-A antibody that's typically made by people who are type O interacts with the S protein at the point where it connects to the ACE2 receptor. This actually was demonstrated for uh, the first SARS virus and the 
Middle Eastern respiratory virus. We know that there's this capacity. It also makes perfect sense if you look at some of the other things that are indicated as well that are not blood type specific. The um, association with uh, what's called mannose binding lectin uh, with regard to its ability to, uh, there are certain uh, polymorphisms of people who have inabilities to make certain levels of MBL2. Um, these are very well studied. They're associated with predilections for juvenile otitis media and stuff. You all know what MBL2 is? Mm -hmm. Good. It's a serum opsonin, basically. It's a part of the complement innate immunity that wasn't around when I learned innate immunity. They actually only had uh, uh, classic complement cascade and alternate complement cascade. I'm so old that those are the two forms of innate immunity I learned. The whole lectin pathway hadn't even been elucidated at that point because they didn't even know that there was such a thing as a lectin that was made endogenously. All lectins were thought to be only exogenous. But it turned out that actually there's a variety of lectins that are made internally by us. Uh, and man and binding lectin is one of them. And the interesting thing here is that the levels of man and binding lectin are tend to be lower in type A as well. So you have the inability to be able to synthesize a anti-A class antibody plus a general tendency to have a downregulation of this MBL2, which seems to be the thing that's kind of puts A's at a little bit of a disadvantage. But you can get around that because I mean, like most of these things have hacks. And, and, and with this, you know, you have uh, all the A-like lectins out there that are specific for A-like epitopes, but not specific for A itself. So you have fava beans and silver dollar mushrooms and soy. All these foods contain agglutinins that would more or less double for the missing anti-A antibodies that people who are type A can't make against this. Lectins are, show up again and again and again with coronavirus, uh, mainly because viruses basically use lectins of their own making to do what they need to do. When you talk about a hemagglutinin on an influenza virus, that's a fancy word for a lectin. I mean, just another word for lectin. Um, one of the other lectins that showed up as being very, very strongly indicated as well is the lectin from Allium porum. You know, you know what that is? Anybody want to guess? It's leeks. I was thinking leeks. Leeks. And they did some real good studies and came uh, out of, with three studies concurring, <clears throat> that uh, these fall into a framework of what are known as um, <clears throat> monocot mannose binding lectins. That's the entire category. They're, they're, they're mannose binding lectins from monocots. Monocots are mostly um, your, your alliums and things like that. So again, here's how we can knit the story up again. What did I say before? Mannose binding lectin. What am I talking about again? Mannose monocot lectins here the one from leak being the most powerful in terms of its abilities to interfere with, serona, with coronavirus attachment through the ACE2 receptor. <clears throat> so these are 
things that would really qualify as that stage one, you know, which is the mild influenza. This is the kind of stuff that you, I would, if I had a person who I was monitoring who had this, I would be using these things because, you know, you're dealing with low levels of viremia. Uh, these things are safe. Uh, they can be integrated very easily. Lectins are very, very profound molecules because um, they don't typically obey things like the law of mass action. You know, they don't, um, uh, they don't give you an effect that's totally dependent on the size of the dose. Um, there's a phenomenon with lectins called capping. And you might be familiar with a chemical called ricin uh, that's used to kill uh, some spy back in the 70s. They found a little tiny gold ball on his leg that somebody stabbed him with an umbrella. And uh, inside that go uh, gold ball, there were two microscopic holes drilled and they still found traces of ricin. But the amount of that ricin that was in that particular um, agent that was actually the thing that was uh, given to him was measured in microdoses. So here's a lectin that was able over the course of I think 48 or 72 hours to, to produce massive amounts of hemolysis even though the doses were near homeopathic. And, and the reason for that is that um, lectins produce a phenomenon where as they act on the cellular receptors, they've caused the receptors to migrate to, I guess you would say like the North Pole. It's called capping. The, the receptors migrate and form a cap. Uh, and, and basically what's happening is they're all just sort of glomming onto each other. And then what happens is as that cap is formed, the covalent forces shift and reverse and that causes the lectin to disassociate. So actually, we don't really know what would be a profoundly effective dose because it may be that reasonably insignificant doses may work well because they simply work over and over and over again. Uh, so, you know, I, I like, I like um, leeks, I like um, uh, shallots had also too, their, their, their particular lectins were also very effective. And then finally, the, the last lectin there was uh, Urtica dioca, which has uh, uh, Urtica dioca glutenin. Very, very interesting. Lectin, interesting. I wrote a, a, a blog on it and was contacted by somebody who worked for NIH who said, assured me that NIH was extraordinarily interested in Urtica dioca lectin right now and wanted to just compare notes and things. And so we were talking a little bit about you know, how could we scale up the doses from, um, you know, what was, was showing eff effectiveness in, in, in animals and how do we come up with some kind of a dose for a human? And it turns out that actually you could probably get a reasonably good dose of vertica dioca glutenin with uh, a couple of hundred to a thousand milligrams of vertica dioca rhizome, which is taken by a lot of people because it has... Uh, uh, effects on sex hormone binding globulin. So you see a lot of um, uh, middle-aged people, especially guys, uh, get this um, functional medicine people use it for that. But uh, Erica dioca glutenin is actually a super antigen too. 
So it has interesting effects in terms of uh, uh, clonal activation of CD8 cells. Uh, and most of these CD8 cells are kind of what you're looking to have activated in, in the coronavirus uh, in, in terms of immune modulatory effects. Um, and also too, their spectrum of cytokines is, is, is more to the mark. It's more about being able to deal specifically with the infection rather than causing collateral damage. So we looked at that and it turns out that ergodioca um, gluten does have effects on ACE2 attachment of the S protein. But they also identified that there were what they called early and late fusion events that were being blocked by urticodiolic as well. So a lot of the components of viral fusion where it was merging with the cell membrane and, 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 and being able to uh, migrate through there and then basically fuse out again were interfered with urticodiolic as well. Um, where else do we need to go with this? Some of the other ones that basically we looked at as well from a, from a study uh, analytical standpoint was um, um, modulating inflammasome activity. And for that, we looked at um, the best indicated there was melatonin. Uh, so um, we worked that one backwards and forwards. And that turned out to be very interesting because even under the circumstances of what was involved and I don't know how familiar you are with inflammasomes and that whole mechanism, but um, they're a tripwire innate immunity thing that's often activated by what are called PAMFs. Uh, these are uh, pattern recognition molecules that typically look for certain antigenic patterns that would indicate uh, from a simple yes-no perspective that there was uh, infection with a variety of, of recognized microbial patterns. And so you, these PAMPs, the P-A-M-P-F, pattern recognition things, they're like tripwires and they, 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 they sort of interact with uh, a variety of uh, CD uh, markers. CD14 is maybe the big one. Uh, and they have a direct relationship with uh, toll-like factor two, toll-like factor four. So there's a whole, if you go into Opus, there's a, a real good um, um, uh, molecular map on, on inflammasomes. And you know, it's all clickable. The big guy there is one called NLRP3. That's, that's the major inflammasome marker. And that's the one that seems to show the most promise with regard to uh, uh, melatonin. In the beginning, I talked about vitamin D and vitamin C. And uh, there was some flurry because uh, two functional medicine people had come down on the side of recommending against vitamin D. and. And this was a, interesting because, you know, and this is how you get into trouble. It's like you, 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 you go into the Lego set of your mind, you find some studies that show that such and such thing has increased a biomarker. And then you extrapolate out that because of that observation, it's probably bad under these circumstances because these are very biomarkers we want to be careful about having because they can be pretty late. They can pretty, uh, pretty um, they, they can be involved in the, in the production of uh, the, the advanced inflammatory uh, fiascos. 
But here's the problem. You, 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 you have a study that is done on a cell culture and they drop a dumpster full of this stuff on the cells after first priming the cells to produce the effect that they want. So let's twiddle the cell and then drop a busload of this crap on top of it and see what happens. And that's how you wind up with those kind of conclusions. Here's, here's the other side of the coin. And this is the part that gets me. Um, we have studies that show in the specific scenario, the utility of the substance. And still people would say, well, because I can conceive of this thing, I, I, I'm having a problem and I think people shouldn't use it. And yet here's another study that says, well, one of the clearest signs of progression to ARDS is vitamin D deficiency. So how does your Lego assumption compare to somebody who's made an absolute hardcore observation about the nature of this with regard to a disease? So you have a whole thing with that. Uh, there's other studies that show that vitamin D actually tends to vitamin D deficiency being associated with an increased risk of cytokine storm. So here's two hard studies looking directly at a causal basis that clearly indicate that the amount of vitamin D that basically people should get is going to be very safe, largely not going to play into any kind of a consequential event as far as cytokines. And think about it. I mean, Who's got vitamin D out there right now? Everybody uses sunblock. Everybody wears, you know, clothing all over the place. There's not a whole lot of sun. Everybody takes three showers a day, so you don't even have the oils on your skin that can convert it to vitamin D. Um, so what's the big issue here with being able to get people's vitamin D levels up to around 50 or even 60? Nothing at all. Which takes us to the other thing, which is the elderberry controversy. And here's another thing, too. Somebody found an article that showed that elderberry increased cytokines. And this was now a terrible thing. Don't take elderberry. And yet, we have the same exact juxtaposition. Here's somebody playing with Legos in their mind based upon biomarker studies of in vitro analysis. Yet, here are studies that show, well, elderberry effective in upper respiratory, elderberry effective in coronavirus. So how do you compare these two things? These are absolute causal events. These are hypotheticals. And the interesting thing is if you go look at the studies that are involved in determining how these cytokines are made, they're, they're, they're the most insignificant. Even the studies that show that they increase cytokines, are, they do this to an insignificant degree. Um, mathematically, if you ran a half marathon, you would have a hundred times the level of cytokines that elderberry can produce. So you want to give people some useful advice as they're going into ICU to get ventilated, tell them that they shouldn't run any marathons uh, for the near future, because that's going to raise their cytokines a whole lot more than elderberry is. So what are we left with? I was reading something very interesting today, which was there's some conflicting information on even things like uh, 
you know, we, we like to think that cigarette smoke was going to mess you up when it came to basically having upper respiratory tract infections. And yet there's some evidence that suggests that in certain instances, the number of smokers was a little bit less than was expected. Now that could be artifactual or whatever, but it turns out that there's studies that show that nicotine actually depresses the number of ACE2 um, receptor expression. And so it might not necessarily be that the smoking is protected as much as the amount of nicotine they were getting. And the other thing you can think of, and you might, I don't know if you know this from your botanical medicine thing, but this got me thinking of lobelia. Because ultimately lobelia has what? Lobeline, which is what? Indian tobacco, which is what? The optical isomer of nicotine. So it's the other-sided hand of the nicotine molecule. So I thought to myself, you know, what first I did is I asked a few friends if they were using it at all. A few said that they were. But I was thinking that that's something else I'd, I'd look into if I had a person who was really starting to strike me as, as, as going into a more progressive type of situation as well. So what am I, where am I at here? Okay, there's one final thing I wanted to talk about too, which is um, uh, sulforaphanes, right? Which are, you know, your sprouted veggies and things. Uh, there's a article and it's, it's on this blog I wrote, and it, it's kind of like why older people seem to be most impacted. And the thing that caught my attention was, are you seeing this mm -hmm. over here? The thing that caught my attention was this TMPRSS2, which is a, a family of, of uh, uh, ligands that uh, massively increase uh, the connectivity of SARS to the ACE2 receptor. And um, this is normally produced as a result of ROS activity. Um, and so the literature, what we were able to find was that actually it turns out that uh, the normal control mechanism for this, when this gets upregulated, uh, the ACE2 uh, receptor avidity increases dramatically. When 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 uh, this is in need of being uh, controlled, uh, it activates what are called the antioxidant response elements, uh, which are the um, NRF2 and KEAP1. These are the uh, superoxide dismutase one, superoxide dismutase two. These are the antioxidant genesis, endogenous antioxidant uh, production machinery. Um, and so these get you your things like your superoxide dismutase, your catalase, and stuff like that. And this uh, is how the body tamps down this TMPRSS2. <clears throat> well, it turns out in the literature has all sorts of information, but one of the things that came out strongest was basically that sulforaphane was very, very powerful at being able to brought this down. But it also made me think these are the exact things that, that drop in an age-related manner. Um, you know, antioxidant levels drop precipitously as we get older. So um, I was looking at, you know, well, maybe these are other things that I would be putting into my, my, my early stage things that would be useful, you know, more sprouted things, uh, cruciferous vegetables. Uh. And it turns out that there's a, um, 
there's a SNP on this particular gene that does have some strength uh, behind it as a predictive advice for um, uh, some of the severity of COVID-19. So I mean, it is a strong uh, causal relationship that can be demonstrated with this particular uh, protein and uh, the, and it's interesting. I mean, I don't know if you've read any of these blog entries, I can send the links to you. Um, but um, the, the other one that I was looking at here was interesting was uh, this pyrotosis. Um, and what I liked about uh, this pyrotosis is, uh, well, you know about apoptosis, right? Well, this is um, um, the uh, inflammatory consequences that come from uh, inflammasome activation. They induce pyrotosis. And it was interesting because uh, there was a researcher in Japan who I was in contact with who, who was uh, drawing a strong correlation to uh, uh, lactate hydrogenase, LDH levels, and using those as an implication of the propensity of the person to go into pyrotosis would be a, a placeholder for uh, ARDS. So. And this is one of the things that's considered to be a, a marker associated with COVID. Um, the other one that's coming up now is um, reflective of some later findings that have just come out that are talking about the fact that they're finding lymphocytes that are um, undergoing damage and destruction as a result of uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection. And they're liking that to, you know, kind of an AIDS phenomenon. But uh, unlike AIDS, where the retrovirus actually used the uh, T helper cells to produce new viruses, it, it, there's a clear sign that if there is viral uh, lymphocytic destruction going on as a consequence of COVID-2, it's not because the uh, lymphocytes are being used to, as, as to manufacture virus particles or anything. That doesn't take it may be it may be related to uh, uh, destruction of the lymphocyte as a result of some of these other inflammatory activities. Uh, there's also uh, some changes to um, uh, TP53 that we notice, uh, and uh, when TP53 gets brought into the question. Uh, there's a diminishment in apoptosis resistance. And so it may be that um, these, these lymphocytes are just dying simply of exhaustion and, and, and the infection process is, is a secondary. But lymphopenia is one, you're probably aware of this, is one of the um, consequences, one of the, one of the concomitants of this uh, infection. So, uh, but one of the good things is that it doesn't appear that you know, the virus doesn't like seek out lymphocytes. It's not going to be like an AIDS version of this. Other things to keep in mind, um, there were some interesting studies that I was reading today that seemed to indicate that uh, a viral vaccine uh, may be rather simple and not difficult to achieve. They, they were, at least in animal studies, they were using... Uh, Relatively straightforward uh, viral vaccines, um, and uh, 
uh, didn't require any adjuvants or anything, and they were getting a, a considerable amount of, uh, of response. So we may wind up with a, a vaccine. We're probably going to wind up with several, but they, they may have, a, a, if we're lucky, and this article points anywhere towards what the future will be, is that these, these vaccines might be more um, comparison to other vaccines. They're going to they're gonna not have a whole lot of um, moving parts, and they, they do seem to be somewhat efficacious. The other thing that came out in the last two days that I thought was interesting was that uh, we might be able to put a nail in the coffin that uh, reinfection occurs. Um, so that's good news um, because, uh, you know, you worry that, Oh, oh my God, you know, here are these people saying that somebody has uh, uh, been caused to have been reinfected. But um, let me see if I can find that study. Uh, All right, so what did I do? See if I can move you all over here someplace. So, what they looked at, and this was published in Nature, this is not one of those Chinese preprints. Uh, this actually uh, just came out in Nature, I think, today, and they looked at. Uh, the uh, cases uh, that had been able to retrieve uh, uh, samples. So these, these, this dotted line is the detection limit, and you can see over time uh, the various, uh, and this is a throat swab, this is sputum, uh, this is stool, uh, that uh, they do pop around uh, in and out here, and, and some of that uh, clearly indicates that uh, th these were recovery issues. Um, and in essence, basically, it looks that uh, uh, once you get past uh, a certain period of time, and it might be four weeks or so or whatever, at that point, then you can't recover anything from anybody. So um, good news, uh, because that implies uh, that uh, uh, four to six weeks after infection, uh, it appears that uh, at that point the person uh, doesn't even harbor any viruses, let alone you know being contagious at that point. It does indicate that maybe we're being a little too optimistic with you know looking in quarantine time frames of 14 days or so. Probably the the most conservative and most accurate would be a quarantine period of 28 to 35 days. That would give you maximum coverage by the time that person emerged from quarantine you can send them into the icu at that point i mean they're just they, they're carrying antibodies and they're definitely not infectious so this is a a good piece of news because there was just very very unsettling things coming out with regard to this it was starting to look a whole lot like you know the common cold where you simply got a cold and then three weeks later you got it again uh, and of course you know that's not going to be so great with a disorder like this. So this was a great piece of news. Other things, you know, now you start looking at the whole public health thing and then you start going to yourself, okay, now how are we going to get ourselves out of this mess? The answer to that is 
I don't think anybody really knows. Um, some of the forecasting now is it looks like 2022 before everything gets back to 100% normal. And even then, I mean, if you look at anything came out of any of the other pandemics, um, that's about right. Now, you know, that might not necessarily mean that all of us are going to be doing this in 2022. But, um, you know, nobody's talking about being able to have um, large, large events, you know. I think most people would say that at least for the better part of the rest of this year, they're not going to allow events that have greater than 50 people. So forget about your NBA games and your rock concerts and things like that. So that's, then the other thing I mean is ultimately is when do you get back to airline travel, you know, travel. And a lot of this is going to be predicated as on, on top of everything else by consumer confidence. You know, how is how are people going to feel comfortable about getting on an airplane? And, you know, rushing things, making, you know, you have politicians who want to get things opened up, but you can see there's reports coming out of Japan now and South Korea that show that the worst thing you can do is actually be too aggressive in being able to force uh, back to uh, open uh, society. And Japan now has just really experienced essentially a phase two. Um, so we don't really have a good answer as to when essentially, you know, it's going to be safe to run around and go to rock concerts and do all sorts of stuff like that. But it's, we'll, we'll have phased openings and certainly more, we'll have more of a reality, but especially in the groups that are high risk, um, you know, they may be practicing types of uh, isolation not terribly dissimilar than what's going on now for the better part of the next year. Although you might have situations where, you know, they have people where you expand out. So they're saying, you know, it, it's not going to be this type of isolation. It might be you and your immediate family after everybody gets themselves all cleared out and stuff. So in other words, you're, you're going to have a more socially satisfying life, but not necessarily the ability to flow through society like we had in the past, at least for not another year, year and a half or so. But you, you might be, you know, you should be able to have, uh, uh, families should be able to reconnect and small businesses should be functional to a certain degree. So, and of course the bottom is going to be what, what's going to happen, you know, with regard to the percentage of people who are now unemployed, how many of them will come back to work? How many of those people will be able to support themselves, you know, given the fact that many people are marginal in terms of their finances to start? So there's a lot of issues that are going to have to be looked at with regard to um, endgame here, you know. Wait, hold on. But why, why is this one going to be this way? Because like SARS, for example, it wrapped up in a couple months and then, you know, it, that was kind of it. Um, so why is this one different? Well, like it, it SARS, no SARS, SARS had, had tiny clusters in Toronto and a few other places. Well, like I was in China at the time it, and it never came back in China. Like we were okay, you know, like. Yeah, but I mean, if you're looking at something that had, uh, you know, 
Okay. Well, look at Ebola. I mean, you know, the, the, normally, the, you know, they put a wall around these things. They bring in the guys in the astronaut suits and then they quarantine everybody. And, and you know, they get it down to where, you know, they've got the, they, they, they have a hot zone and then they kind of put that thing out. And, you know, they've done this for MERS. They did this for SARS-1. They've done it for Ebola. They did it for H1N1. To a certain degree, uh, that's just good public health. It's just good epidemiology. Where you, 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 the problem with this is this thing got to a point where the genie was out of the bottle. Those, you know, you, you have an entire different characteristic at that point. Uh, you know, when you have this degree of penetration, you know, and let's, let's assume, uh, you know, I've seen various numbers, but the one I like the best is uh, 15% of the American public has probably been exposed to this virus. So um, at any given, you, in any given amount, you have obviously asymptomatic carriers, you have people who go on and get mild infections, and then you have the people who wind up in the frozen mark. Um, and you know, if it was only as simple as being able to let everybody go through the whole flu thing, then it'd be great because everybody would do the whole herd immunity thing, get to it 80%, and then that would be the end of it. This thing would burn itself out. Um, but the problem is, is that, uh, you know, you've got a fatality rate that uh, seems a lot higher than people were saying, you know, and depending, I mean, and, and you don't really know because we, we don't know the total number of who's dying from this at this point. But even New York State is, is, has a fatality rate that's over 5%. So, I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a very high amount of dead people for a disease. But is part of that because of the way they count it? Like if someone dies of something and they had COVID, they say they died of COVID. Like even if it's not necessarily the cause of death? Well, it would have been the cause of death if they hadn't died, if they hadn't gotten COVID. Okay. Right. In other words, you take a person who has um, a heart condition. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, and ask yourself, if that person with the heart condition would still be here if he didn't catch COVID-19, then actually the cause of death was COVID-19. Because ultimately without COVID-19, the person would still be here. Now you can say to yourself, that's obviously a whole different story than just some poor slob walking down the street, minding his old business who gets COVID-19 and dies exclusively of COVID-19. That's just another COVID-19 death too. But it's very hard to tease out comorbidities um, because you know these are these are these are complicated interlocking things and you know the end result is is it's almost like a numbers game you know did that person not die of covid you know well the only way you can answer that question is to take covid out of the equation and ask yourself would they still be here and the answer most of the time is yes you know if if if, if that person was going to die of that heart condition anyway and it's wrong to blame COVID, but what are the odds that they would have died that same day that they got COVID such that we can't blame COVID for it? You know, it's, it's, I, I would say that the reality is that uh, it's a grim reaper. It's, it's, it's an angel of death for elderly people. And we can say, well, yeah, they've got all their comorbidities and everything. But um, if, if the fact was that without this particular pandemic, they'd still be here, then the pandemic wasn't, in fact, cause of their death. I think there's a lot of questions about how people are looking at things like that because somebody has brought up that hospitals get paid more 
if they dial it in as a COVID or something like that. Uh, I don't know. I, you know, it's interesting. I find, you know, so much of what I try to do with a lot of the people that are in these, this group I manage is to just get them to just think better. You know, and I'm not saying that you're not thinking. Well, you're you're a great thinker, but uh, I think I think we try to you know we, we don't look at Occam's razor sometimes and say to ourselves you know we already have a simple explanation, so there's no further need to make a more complicated explanation. You know, it's one of the few scientific things I wholeheartedly ascribe to that keep it simple, stupid. You know, now if you look at it from that perspective, it's hard to say that. Uh, you know, we will know ever if this was a Chinese invention in some lab or whether it was a bioterrorism weapon or Bill Gates designed this thing or 5G makes it worse. That's for historians to figure out, you know, it's for historians to figure out. And they will be because you have investigative journalists and stuff. But here's my theory is that, and this is my theory about virtually any conspiracy type theory that people tell me, unless it's based in what I can seem to be some objective facts. Conspiracy theories require people to be really, really smart. When you look at like conspiracy theories in the movies, the villains are always arch villains and they're always like really high IQ people because let's face it, coming up with a conspiracy to take over the world, you have to be pretty smart. Now, contrast that with the more likely explanation that all of this is the result of people who are assholes. Okay, they're dumb fucks. They're idiots, they're ignorant, they're small-minded, they don't see beyond their nose. What do you think is the greater odds? The greater odds is that these are the results of, of, of human failings that are just a fact of life, that basically you have, you know, you, you saw uh, maybe you saw the um, Chernobyl, series Chernobyl, and you realize that in a communist state, people don't like to tell their bosses bad news. So they don't you know and then this thing festers and then you know you think to yourself okay these chinese people are running down the street in astronaut suits and they're spraying the streets and and doing all sorts of things and they just went for their chinese new year and i'm thinking to myself well that ain't good okay because i mean let's face it you know this is an open society and then you ask any japanese or any chinese person what's the country they want to go visit Italy, they all want to go see the Colosseum. They all want to go see Michelangelo's David. All, all Asians are frustrated Italian people. So in essence, what's the, what, you know, it's a classic thing. It just, they, they, they had a huge influx of tourism in that area, bada boom, you know? And then open societies, and here we are. So, you know, you look at, you look at other containment efforts, you know, now here, here's the weird part. I wrote another thing on this as well. The whole lack of preparation that characterized how this country responded to this, the, the idea that if you just ignore it, it'll go away. The idea that, you know, this is not going to show up here. The idea that the risk of the American public is low, that we have adequate amounts of uh, protective devices, that our, our emergency rooms are adequately staffed, that we have enough capacity. All of that under preparation will be exceeded by the huge amount of over-preparation that will follow. So like I said, and jokingly in one of my blogs, I think by Thanksgiving, we'll have 100 million ventilators 
and by New Year's Eve, we'll have one billion ventilators. Okay, because that's unfortunately the way we get things done in this country. We underreact and overcompensate. So, you know, you don't really know what the long-term solution is. We might have situations where um, my, my call on this is that we'd be in a position probably by mid-July, uh, you guys would probably be an, in some version of a clinical environment back again where there's some patient contact and direct uh, uh, activity probably by end of July or August. And then going into the fall, you know, things will ramp up a little bit more as well. But other people might be much more uh, isolated and, and you might be doing a whole lot more telemedicine type stuff. I don't even know if your clinic is equipped to do that. But I don't think it is because you have the world's worst EMR system, if I remember correctly. Uh, so, uh, but, you know, there's, there's lots of things that we, we don't know yet. But what I, I try to do here in this time is kind of give you what I know at this point. Um, and a lot of it is, is up in the air, but uh, we will see. But I believe that mm, we as a profession should have, should have embraced our role in the early stage management for which our allopathic brothers and sisters have, have assumed no responsibility for whatsoever. So we should be thinking about being able to provide the anticipatory services, the genetic analysis that identifies certain risk groups, the foods in the early stages that might convey protective or preventive effects. Having done that, should a person go into a stage where they've become in contact and they're infected and they're going to go through the influenza stage, we should have a set of protocols and decision trees in place so that we can guide them through that process so that they go through that with the minimum amount of discomfort. They go through it to be able to engender an optimum immune response, a very discrete immune response to control for side effects, to mitigate against the uh, other consequences and to prevent utilization of, of precious health resources and keep those people out of uh, hospitals and ICUs as part of keeping them healthy is just keeping them out of hospitals as well. And I think we have to think about adopting that from a, from a, a public awareness standpoint. Uh, you know, as I said at the very beginning, you know, in China, they don't have a problem doing a study that combines two allopathic antivirals and three TCM herbs. And yet we have, we've, we have no presence in this dialogue here, no presence in this narrative. So we're going to have to start doing stuff about that. And I, and I suspect that you sort want to, you want to have, you know, this is an opportunity to, to serve humankind here. And, you know, we have, we have things here that can seriously um, make a difference in terms of the overall health of, of the people and the population. And, and you think about it, I mean, I don't know what our reach is in terms of underserved populations, but, you know, we talk about how minorities and people of color are getting screwed by this. Shouldn't we have uh, channels of communication to those people that are giving them the kind of information that we have that they can use proactively so that, again, they avoid 
the consequences of being underserved by the allopathic healthcare system, which is it's a good idea to keep them out of that if we can. So, you know, you should be thinking about this kind of stuff as well. Um, because, uh, you know, I suspect that by the time we're done with this, until we forget how to do it, you know, for the next couple of 10 or 15 years, I think, you know, we're going to get so burned by this that you won't be able to sneeze in Grand Central Station before somebody hoses you down with something. So, you know, the reality is, is that uh, who knows what the future will be, but, you know, some of you guys know I read a lot of history. And if you look at the consequences of the Black Death in 13, 49, 48, 47, and of course that killed a lot of people. So you're looking at uh, 35% of the population died. Your population was diminished uh, by 30, 33%, millions of people. But it caused an upheaval because the, the society was so destabilized that for the first time, uh, people could could ask for wages and get and ask to get paid. Up until that point, everything was all futile. In other words, you know, I have my plot of land, I, I grow some stuff, I give you half. But all of a sudden, because so many people were dead, there was such a labor shortage that people could negotiate for the first time, and we had the, the beginning of to be able to have a wage-based economy. And you think to yourself that these types of pandemics really do produce an aftermath where things certainly don't go back to the way they were before. We, 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 we're going to have to have a discussion about health care because we don't have a health care system. Okay. What's our role going to be in that? I don't know, but we should be thinking about that and we should be thinking about the kind of role that we're going to play. You know, what that will be, it's, it's hard to say. You know, I do know, I, in the course of my life, I, who's sneezing over there? Did your cup, did you put your hand on your thing there? <laughs> you know, in the course of my 30 some odd years, I've saved the healthcare system a lot of money. You know, I had a, at least two people who were headed for liver transplants and never got them. How much does a liver transplant cost the healthcare system? Hundreds of thousands of dollars. It would have been nice if they gave me 1% of that. I would have been happy. But of course, nobody gave me, let alone 1%, nobody gave me any credit. It was, it was, but it was a fact. These people were headed for those transplants and they didn't get them. So we, we know we can save, we can save this healthcare system money. That's, that's, but we don't seem to have that kind of capacity. Your, your generation, of naturopaths is going to have to, you're going to just have to do it better than we did. You just have to be able to stare people down, try to denigrate, belittle you, and push back. And you know, you're going to have to know your value and you're going to have to be able to express it. And I sometimes I see how, how we explain ourselves and, and, and where there's just a confused state about, we don't even know what, how we fill needs, let alone how can we expect someone else to figure out how we fill needs? It just doesn't happen. So, you know, we did the best we could. My generation did the best we could. We got it to this point for better or worse. You guys are going to have to take it the next step. You know, you're going to have to move, move the goalpost a little further. And, and hopefully that's going to be bringing this kind of information to people in a, in a, in a way that is clear, clearly 
shows that we are responsible for the consequences of, of, of what we what we say. You know, and I go back to what I said in my Facebook group. I spend most of my time talking people off the ledge, you know, because they got all these crazy ideas about things. Who wants it, you know, three, three quarts of colloidal silver? And, you know, and then they tell, well, you know, I'm drinking lots of, of, of tonic water. And it's like, you know, the law says you can't have more than 83 milligrams of tonic water in a liter of tonic water. You can't have more than 83 milligrams of quinine. So if you look at the standard dose being about 600 to 800 milligrams, you have to drink 10 liters of quinine water a day to get a roughly half dose of the therapeutic level of quinine, which we don't even know is sufficient. And just think of all the gin you would have to use to do that. So, you know, the, the reality is, is that uh, people are confused, they're confused and they're scared. And when you're confused and they're scared, you know, like that Chinese proverb, drowning man grasps his straws, you know, they grasp. And the problem is, is there's a lot of people out there who play to their fears and, and just, just so sad, you know. Um, it's like even the whole thing with vitamin D. It's like, if, if you have no proof that it's bad, but you have a hypothetical model, why don't you just keep your mouth shut? You know, when I was in Catholic school in the third grade, the nuns used to say, if you had nothing nice to say, don't say anything at all. And it's like, you know, what, you know, I can, I, can, I can tolerate a sin of omission, but a sin of misdirection, you know? If you go to somebody and they say, which way is, uh, which way is uh, Westchester County? And uh, the answer is turn right, but you tell people to turn left. That's worse than telling them you don't know and you can't help them, all right? Because you actually gave them the wrong information. You sent them the wrong place. And that, how much of that stuff's flying around? All these functional medicine guys, they're just saying the craziest stuff. You know, so. Questions. Um, one, what do you think of like the potential vaccine? I'll ask, ask all of them. You can answer what you feel like answering. What do you think of like the potential vaccine? Because people are going to be jumping all over that. Two, what have you been looking at? Like, because moving forward, we might have patients who have had COVID and then they have lung fibrosis. And I was trying to think through like what could be helpful there. And I wasn't sure because I was, and I, and I really haven't looked into it too much. I wasn't sure if the pathophysiology would be the same as like fibrosis and connective tissue because, you know, it's not well, really. Lung fibrosis, animal, lung fibrosis is, is, is also kind of, a, kind of a death sentence um, over time, especially if you put it in the realm of pulmonary hypertension or some of the other consequences. Now, you know, there might be very severe cases of pulmonary fibrosis in people who had severe COVID and maybe mild cases of people who just simply had, you know, bad pneumonia, but got over it. Um, you know, getting reversal of scarification, uh, it's hard to say, you know, I mean, because you're looking not only at uh, uh, the various uh, membranous type uh, aspects, but you're dealing with uh, gas transfer as well. And so you've got, you know, the, all the surfactants and, you know, how do you induce alveolar regeneration? Um, hard to say. Um, there's there's uh, some things that I came across over time for those things. Uh, Believe it or not, I, I think at that point, you know, the best we could do until we get some better ideas of 
of the indications for, for agents from a therapeutic standpoint is supportive care. So you would be looking at things like um, um, expectant. In other words, it would be a treatment not terribly dissimilar than for CPLD, a very similar type treatment. You have another question? So I've, AANP has been really active. They've been sending out daily emails about, you know, they're having webinars about how to get people launched with telemedicine, um, how to get people, I feel like the focus has been really financial, um, how to save your business basically from going under during this time, how to apply for grant money, how to apply for the rescue money. Yeah. Um, the telemedicine stuff I thought was helpful. So. You know, based on what you were saying here, I, I think this is an opportunity, right? You never let a good crisis go to waste, right? You said that. So I don't know who said it actually. But um, so. It's, well, a crisis, right? Isn't, isn't crisis an opportunity to the same character in Chinese? Yes, it is actually. Yeah. So, you, so there is an opportunity here for us to have maybe increase sort of our role in the health model. But yeah, I don't really see it happening yet. And I'm not quite sure how we how we would even... I, um, I was asked to be on an AAMP special COVID-19 committee and I agreed. And within five or six emails, it became quite clear that everything was being framed in terms of politics. And I just felt that everything should start from the perspective of how can we help humanity? Because ultimately, isn't that the best politics? you know, to, to, to just to go straight to the heart of the matter, which is how can we help? Where do we help? Who do we help? But they were looking at it like, you know, we need to get our foot in the door, you know, with vitamin C, IV, and all sorts of things. And I showed them some of the stuff I was doing, and I don't know, I felt like it wasn't going anywhere. So, you know, I still get the emails, but I don't really say anything or whatever. It's, you know, it's, it's a political organization. So I suppose its major goal is politics. Um, they do have a vested interest in their members surviving this thing economically. So that's good. Um, but, you know, I didn't become a naturopath to advance naturopathic medicine. It was, it was, for me, it was a ways to a means. You know, I learned a bunch of things so I can go out and help people. And I thought, you know, that would be probably the best way to advance naturopathic medicine is make a whole lot of happy people. Um, and, you know, it seems like that's almost too simplistic, I think, nowadays, but that's still the way I feel. So, you know, I mean, I do participate, but I don't know. I think I think we are struggling to uh like I said this before, you know. You you have to look at what your goal is. If our goal is to get other people to like us and coexist so that we can be left to do what we want to do unopposed and unbothered, that's a terrible goal. It's a very short sighted goal. You know, if if our goal is to is to deconstruct and reconstruct the healthcare system, then you're talking about a very, very big obligation, but you might as well embrace it if that's indeed what you wanted, what your plans are. You can't run away from that. You know, we, we, on our, we pose an existential challenge 
<clears throat> to the dominant medical model. But we would like to act that somehow or another, if we did all the right things, they would like us. And they're not going to like us because we would be forcing an uncomfortable amount of change on their part. And we would be upsetting an uncomfortable amount of the basis of their economics. So they're only going to come to an agreement with what the role of naturopathic healthcare can be in a future healthcare system if we hit them over the head with it to the point that they're unconscious and they get the fact that if they continue to be bothersome about it, they're just going to get another hit. And then we take the public with us because our fundamental goal is to create a reform movement by appealing to the need for people to take care of themselves and take responsibility for their own lives. You carry the world on your shoulders with you. And then you don't have to show up in a state capital and hat in hand and ask for somebody to give you something. But then again, I'm just an old hippie, so, you know, this is my problem. Anybody got another questions or comments or anything? Or did we just, I don't know. I thought hopefully this was more kind of low-key and freewheeling, but Anthony, ask me a question. Okay, let's see. <laughs> um, when do you think antibody tests will be available and will that uh, have any impact on the situation? Great question. They're available right now. <clears throat> you can get them. Uh, there's a variety of now private sector companies that are doing it. Uh, I believe you can even get his request. There's also a um, study, and they're looking for 10,000 people. I could send you the link to get tested for antibodies. Um, I actually just emailed them yesterday asking to participate because I would love to know if I have it since I live in Westchester, where it's like the epicenter of corona. Sure. Now, the problem with the antibody tests as I've seen is they're just reporting positive and negatives on the particular antibodies. So for instance, they'll say, you know, S protein IgM, S protein IgG positive, negative. Me, I, I'm, I'm an immunologist. I want to see titers. You know, I want to see numbers, one to 256. I want to see one to, you know, because you, if you can get titer data, you can basically create the curves that are going to tell you, you know, what kind of protection you have over the long term. But right now, I think they're just doing simple antibody isolation. And that was helping. Now, you got to keep in mind a couple of things. Some of these tests have a degree of accuracy that's around 95%. Some tests basically in combination with uh, PCR can get that up to well over 99%. But a test with an accuracy of 95%, if you know anything about Bayesian analysis and Bayesian logic, a 95% accuracy is not good enough to go out and assume that that person has uh, been exposed and can't get you infected because the predictive capacity at 95%, one person explained that it's, it's pretty much a killing yourself if you, if you actually act on that as a, as a protective device at, those, at that level of, of uh, accuracy. So, you know, what it would be helpful for is, yes, like what Sarah said, you might be able to say, hey, I got this thing already. But uh, we don't know if the test will basically have false positives. We don't even know. See, now, what, what happens if, uh, even worse, the test has 95% accuracy, but the errors tend to run towards false positives? 
now you've got somebody who's outside thinking that they are safe, but they still could be infected. So they could be outside thinking that they're safe and they could be carrying the virus infecting their grandparents. So it's not perfect, but we'll get there. Uh, Jesse, give me a question. I saw something online where they were they were talking about different vaccines, like when they had tried for SARS that actually, you know, if the it was probably an animal had the vaccine and then was exposed to the virus, it had um, like an even worse response. Have yeah, there, 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 uh, that was noticed for uh, dengue fever too. That actually is it dengue. I forget dengue or something like that. D e n g u. Dengue, which is stuff you put on your shoulder when it hurts. Uh, but That's dengue. <laughs> dengue, yeah. Uh, yeah, this is what I was talking about before. Um, do you see this? Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Um, the The reality is, yes, you can you can have uh, certain types of viruses uh, and certain types of vaccines that an effective vaccine actually in a small number of people will will actually be injurious. But at least if this article is any indication of some possibilities, is that actually. Uh, the when you have a, a vaccine that's comprised solely of a receptor binding domain without the need for any sort of antibody independent enhancement, that's a very, very stripped down vaccine because there's, there's almost nothing in it besides the very thing you're making the vaccine from. And this article, like I say, it was in mice, but it showed that it, you could achieve uh, a potentially neutralizing antibody response with really a very, very stripped down vaccine. And, you know, will this basically give you that similar type of thing that we noticed with uh, Ben Gay? I don't know, but <clears throat> it is a possibility. Um, and as I said before, you're, you're not, you're not going to have um, one vaccine, probably by the time they're done, just like you're going to have a billion ventilators by New Year's, you're going to probably have 35 vaccines. Uh, and you, you know, some will work by virtue of this, and some will work by virtue of that. Then perhaps maybe there'll be some genetic identifiers which tend to su suggest one format of a vaccine versus another. But if this is true, this actually is is a very good piece of of news because this is saying that you you know you don't have to you can make something like this. It wouldn't be terribly much more complicated than a seasonal influenza vaccine. Um, and, you know, really, what is it all about? You know, it's, it's actually, you know, who are going to get this? A geezer is going to get this. Your grandparents are going to get this. Your mothers and fathers are going to get this because, it is, and, and who knows, it may be that by that time we'll be able to I determine that a considerable number of your grandparents got exposed and went through it. So we'll know the people who don't have the antibodies. Then we cross-reference that with, um, you know, comorbidities and other things, and we generate a, an indication that says, you know, this is, this is the preferred way to protect yourself through this kind of a type of thing. You know, it's hard to say, but there'll be, you know, the, the nature of 
this type of society that we live in is like I say, it's, it's under respond and overcompensate. So there'll be all sorts of therapeutic things flying around because there's a lot of money in this at this point, you know, there's a lot of money in this. So, so you can look at this as maybe being a good thing. Um, but yeah, you're right. There are some evidence in the past with certain vaccines uh, that, that actually did uh, uh, not necessarily in some, in small numbers of people with the very disease, it actually amplified the disease, which is interesting. But uh, My concern would be that, you know, given the, the severity, how everything is shut down, they're going, you know, the government's going to use this to force more um, vaccine policies and particularly force this one, you know, something for this, like you said, there might be 35 vaccines and I don't know that they'll have adequate testing before they start forcing people to get them. And that would be a concern that I have. Well, it's paradoxical because, you know, you certainly would be well within the realm of logic to worry whether or not, you know, they were rushing something to market. But then on the other hand, you have people clamoring for a vaccine in two months and the government say, no, we can't make a vaccine that fast. It's got to go through a series of studies. So it's kind of like um, blowing out the, both sides of a trumpet. You have the public clamoring for something that can't be made as fast as they think it can. And other people who would be concerned that even in the right framework and the right time frame, it still would not have had a whole lot of evidence behind it in terms of long-term effects. Um, but again, you know, what little I know about vaccines is uh, uh, that the simpler you make it, the more specific to the antigenic structure it resembles, um, the less adjuvants that you require. And in this case, they were doing it. See that thing where it says without antibody dependent enhancement, that's a big deal because almost all vaccines have conditions where they have to require antibody enhancement. Mm -hmm. uh, it could be the form of aluminums or other things, Freud's adjuvants and all sorts of stuff. This article is saying that at least in animals, they were getting neutralizing levels of antibodies with just this pure antigen of the receptor binding domain, which is the S protein. Um, so, you know, ultimately, will we be faced with having to um, make a choice and will this convert into uh, a strong uh, case for ramming uh, vaccine uh, policy down people's throats? Well, this wasn't the greatest thing for the anti-vaccine movement, I'll give you that. Uh, you know, so the, but the reality is this, I mean, you know, I've never felt that vaccines per se were bad. I mean, I just think certain vaccines might be not so great, you know? Smallpox vaccine was certainly pretty good. Um, you know, there's other things that I like. I mean, this is the thing I, I, I really do feel we have to work on as, a, as, as scientists is to hold completely, two completely divergent ideas in your head at the same time, you know? That, you know, that, that, that yes, you should be dubious of vaccines, but you should be able to be open to the fact that under certain circumstances, there are ones that basically may have a specific value, but that still shouldn't stop you from casting a, a, a jaundiced eye towards things. I mean, you know, we have a crazy hypercharged political world right now, and I, I, you know, I found some people in the anti-vax movement, they just can't find a single nice thing to say about a single vaccine. And to me, that's just too extreme. I, I, I don't like, I don't like being that extreme about anything. 
You know, I like to think that each thing can be evaluated on its own merit. I, I, I agree. I don't want to paint myself as this like. You know, so we're not going to brand new the class anti-vaxxer? <laughs> no, we have somebody else. For that, but um, Okay, good. Uh, you know, but I, I do think that that we should have choice and I don't I, I, I am completely against mandates and so I you know and if you had like in a case like this where you have you know probably 70 80 percent of the population clamoring to get a vaccine because they're so scared of this then that's probably going to be protective enough anyway for well, I don't I don't even think it'll get that far Jess and I you know you're really looking at a herd immunity for everybody under 50 and uh, Grandpa Joe and Grandma Eileen getting something like this. So, you know, the, the reality is it's a bizarre virus, um, but if you're 45 or so, you, at worst, you get a bad case of the flu, really bad myalgia, probably some breathing difficulties, hell of a fever, and you're messed up, and then three months later, it's just a distant memory. Uh, those people are not gonna need vaccination. Um, but there might be people, for instance, like your asthmatic uncle or your COPD grandmother, who may not come out of isolation until they get something like this. And that's a, a whole different story, you know, and, and uh, it's a whole different population away from the standard recipients of, of, of vaccine policy, which, of course, are children. So, you know, will this fuel that? I don't know. I mean, I don't know if, does influenza vaccine fuel the childhood vaccine controversy much? Because I see this as more in alignment with kind of an influenza vaccine kind of take on things than a childhood vaccine kind of take on things. And yeah, you know, I go to Walmart and a lady asks me if I want the flu shot and I say no. And she says, well, you really ought to get it. And I say, well, thank you, but I don't really want the flu shot. Oh, you should really get it. And it's like, well, but if you say no enough, they go away. You know, this, 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 is, this, is, this is the way it is. So, you know, it isn't, it, uh, will it drive policies with regard to kids? Mm, I don't know, maybe, but uh, that's even, even adults, so I heard something in this, this might've been a conspiracy thing, but they were saying like, oh, you might not be able to get um, your driver's license unless you show vaccination records or something. So I, you know, there is, I, I think it's a little further out and a little harder to enforce and push than, the stuff with kids, but people do talk about it, trying ways to enforce it for adults. Well, they were talking about, yeah, immunity certificates. Um, and that might be um, based more on antibody analysis than, like I say, I don't, I think the, the, the vaccine target audience is, is really the people who can't afford the, the native exposure. So, um, who knows, maybe, maybe they'll have to have something like, you know, that or, you know, it's really weird because, I mean, I'm a libertarian, so I, I dislike anything that gets in the way of my own civil rights. I, I don't want to tell you what to do, and I would greatly appreciate it if you don't tell me what to do. Uh, that's my theory. Um, and, you know, we, we have... Uh, um, certain groups of people, you know, who, who sort of get away with the Amish or the Hasidics, you know, they don't do any of this stuff. So, I mean, it's hard to say what, what, what this will do for uh, constitutional rights, but there's enough nut jobs in this world. 
who will picket the White House at the first sign that there's anything that approaches a uh, vaccine mandate. You know, you can sit back and relax. They'll do it for you. There's enough nut jobs out there that'll take care of all that for us. That's the one thing about this country is you can find a couple of crazy people, you know, for almost anything. So you like say to yourself, I mean, it's like I, I put a lot of trust in the fact that nothing here ever gets done without a whole bunch of people protesting it one way or the other. Um, I mean, I sat back on that whole vaccine thing and it was like, you know, it was like watching like, you know, two scorpions in a bottle, you know, what, <laughs> like, you know, and, and, and not really caring, you know, who killed who. Got a question there, Sarah Zara? I'm always full of questions. Um, nope. Um, I guess, um, I guess a comment. Uh, Dr. Fratellone uh, lectured, or lectured us two weeks ago and talked about a vaccine because he's volunteering on the front lines of um, ER hospitals in New York City. And he said they're pushing one out by September and he was extremely fearful of it. He's not like an anti-vaxxer, but he's, he was extremely fearful because he thinks that we truly will be the test subjects if you choose to get the vaccine, if it comes out in September, because it won't be sufficiently tested. Um, I, I, don't I, think, I don't think there's a, I don't think there's a chance of an icicle in hell the vaccine being released by September. Me too. You know, I mean, it just, you, you, you couldn't, you couldn't convince a company to assume that degree of liability, you know? So in, in essence, basically. But are vaccine companies not liable anymore? Well, well, they, they, they do have to contribute to the fund that pays people out who have claims. So if you can imagine that all of a sudden they rush out a vaccine and it turns out that it paralyzed that 10 million people get Ghislaine Barr, a beret or whatever that is. Uh, you know, this, the company would be out of business. It'd be in chapter 11. So, you know, you have to be very careful when you listen to news and, and media because their, their job is to condition you for the eventual subsequent bad news that they're going to give you in the near future. So everything is about preparing you for the next piece of bad news. And this is largely because most of these news companies and politicians just don't give credit for people being as smart or as self-interested as they are, or else they would have been much more honest about masks and they would have been much more likely to tell people to go isolate, you know, sooner. But they all thought the American public wouldn't stand for it. But then they looked up and the American public was doing it already and they hadn't even made the announcements because the American public would like to live. And they, after a while, you just stop believing people. So if you look at that kind of thing, and I have no idea what Patrick is talking about vaccine-wise, that's something that's going to be here in a couple of months. But um, Again, it's, it's really, I, I don't think anybody is talking about making this a sort of societal vaccine um, simply because for a good 55% of the population, it's a mild, moderate influenza type illness. 
So like I say, it falls for me clearer on the realm of a kind of a, it eventually will be a type of a flu vaccine type thing. I mean, you, you know, at that point, and then, and then think about the consequences of looking at it from that perspective, because who gets the flu vaccine? Geezers. Why do geezers get the, the flu vaccine? Because they're the people who die from the flu, right? So do you get a flu vaccine when you're 30 years old? Some people do because they don't want to miss work, all right? But the person who gets a flu vaccine to not die is your emphysemic grandmother, you know, because they're going to have the comorbidities that are going to give them the flu fatality. So it's, it's a really not a, a stretch to just think of this as a sort of an analogous to that because the same um, population that's basically going to get it are really quite identical and really for the same reasons. You get the flu vaccine if you're old and and, and, and infirm because if you get the flu, there's a good chance it can kill you. And that's exactly how this plays out. So uh, I don't know if that was an answer or not. Jalen, ask me a question. Um, okay. Uh, so when you were talking about quercetin and um, Chinese skull cap combination, um, helping with uh, the zinc fluctuation inside the cytoplasm, what, when would you start that kind of procedure even at like stage one i would think because mild, mild influenza okay yeah in other words i think i got it you know i've got a 102 degree fever for two or three days um i have a persistent sore throat maybe a dry cough if you you you'll know something's rotten in denmark yeah you know? and then basically at that point you go into, for instance, that's kind of the same thing with um, stinging nettle and stuff. It doesn't really have preventative effects, it, mm -hmm. preventive effects. So these are things that would go into the realm of the, the next step. In other words, these are things that are going to mo hopefully modulate the course of the illness. Keep yeah. it mild. And this might be a weird question, but or like a general question. Is, is there anything that you could do to in, I, I feel like I know the answer already, but anything to increase your oxygen saturation levels? Like I know breathing and med like breathing exercises and exercising probably would increase it, but it would have to be your hemoglobin picking up the oxygen kind of thing. Right. I mean, you know, the things that would be likely to do that would be, uh, uh, well, you, you, I think you guys did some reading about haptoglobulins and those kind of things that were part of the polymorphisms, but your, your, your best thing there is vitamin C by far. Um, you know, so you could look at that. There's other things, but they're not as well studied. But vitamin C, because of its redox potential, yeah is is really the strongest uh, indicator there and uh you know i mean you could look at other uh, elements as well that might play into this uh obviously uh you know you'd want to see two adequate amounts of of, of iron and um uh, copper the other things that would be involved is hematinics okay. good question Emily, you have a question? I'll let you go on the Dimer one because you already asked the question. 
No, I, yeah, I, I'm just kind of so. I have a follow up. If a follow up. If someone has antibodies, can they donate um, so that other people can utilize the antibodies uh, as treatment? Plasma, right? Yeah, that that's uh, that's called convalescent uh, plasma therapy, and it's being used at two New York hospitals. Uh, it's as old as the hills. It's as, hmm? Isn't it working? Mm. I just saw. I mean, well, the new it it didn't work in one case who was in severe straits. But I, if you remember early part of the talk today, I said that there's not a lot of evidence that antivirals work in the late stages of this anyway. So convalescent plasma would be an antiviral at that point. Um, you know, when you're starting to get into um, septic shock and organ failure, that's no longer a, a problem related to the activity of the virus. It's a whole different thing altogether. So, uh, yes, that's, uh, you know, that's been used, uh, certainly, it was even used during the Spanish influenza that you, they took convalescent serum and used it. Um, you know, it's not without its risks. Uh, obviously, human plasma contains all sorts of nitty-gritty things that may or may not be filterable, viruses and other things. It was used, passive immunotherapy was used in the early days of AIDS because you know, they didn't have helper cells, and so they weren't getting a lot of plasma cell activity, and they weren't making a lot of antibodies, so the opportunistic infections were basically a problem, and so healthy serum from a non-HIV donor was full of all sorts of antibodies, and they would get this passive immunotherapy for a while, and then after that would last about a month or two, and they'd have to get it again. All right, I'm going to sign off at this point. I, I hope this was helpful, and you know, let's plan on one more of these. Thank, Thank you. you. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good Thanks, night. Guys. All right. Take care, guys. Bye. Bye.